If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Welcome to Empire, part two of a special Q&A episode. My name is Anita Arnand. And mine is William Durimple. We've got to be tight on time here because I'm a busy woman today. Are you suggesting that I was pausing for too long, Anita? No, 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 no. I've just waiting for you to ask me why I'm a busy oh, sorry. woman today. Sorry, you're a busy oh, woman. Sorry, I missed my no. cue. I mean, honestly. Oh, Anita, are you starring in a major motion picture this week? Lord have mercy. Oh, let's just talk about you for half an hour. Oh, no, no, no. So I very much enjoyed yeah. I was sitting, enjoying my own business one <laughs> evening in Delhi, watching the wonderful slow horses when you popped yes. up reading the news. Uh, much to my surprise because I hadn't expected this and I hadn't been warned so I have a side hustle in life yes I do have a side hustle in life shall I tell you what my side hustle is I I play myself in in TV dramas and in films so I have done this before so I'm going to do that this afternoon in a major motion picture and if I'm not mistaken I know you didn't want it out there but I can't resist with Rami Malik cut me out oh my gosh they might cut out my one line you and your bond villain but 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 I have done if you want to go back and find me Where's Wally? There she is. She's a Wally. Uh, I have done Black Mirror. I have done Slow Horses, as you've mentioned. I've done The Spy Who Dumped Me with Mila Kunis and Kate McKinnon. <laughs> Very exciting that was. Went to Budapest to do that. No. Uh, and I've got, an, yeah, I've got another one, just basically being me. And I've had hilarious conversations with the costume department. And do you get to meet Rabbi? <laughs> <laughs> Let me say yes, but no. <laughs> it doesn't work. It never works like that on the set. Oh, one day when we have chit chats about this, I will tell you very funny stories about my very, very out of place behaviour on a film set. <laughs> what happened? Got it. No. Go on. Save it. Autograph hunting. What do you Save do? Save it. No, no, it's worse. It's so embarrassing. I can't even begin. Shall we do the questions? Well, give, ahead, give ahead. I'm not going to let it go. I'll give you a tiny, tiny taste. Please. I was let loose on celebrity trailer with a joystick that I should not have been touching. <laughs> I'll, I'll go into detail. No. That doesn't answer any questions. Well, that's fine. I'm a woman of mystery. Anyway, look, let's go back to these questions. So, William, this is from Dennis Chanter, who says, I've read various articles about the history of Zanzibar and often come across mentions of the Arab slave traders who were based there, set up slaving routes into the East African interior and shipped slaves to the Middle East and possibly to India. Please, could you talk about this a bit more? Um, I mean, this is sort of Malakamba territory, isn't it? It is. And more specifically, it's a character called Tip. Tip. And if you go to Zanzibar today and go to Stone Town, you can go and see Tipu Tip's house, which is this magnificent palace in the middle of Stone Town, which incidentally is one of the most extraordinary and fascinating places to visit if ever you're looking for somewhere off the beaten track. And the Tipu Tip was the, the largest slaver in East Africa based out of Zanzibar. He was mixed blood Afro-Omani ethnically. And he organized a whole series of slaving raids into the interior of the African continent using guns and weaponry, which was not available in the interior. 
And some of his raids penetrated so deep, it actually crossed the continent. And he would march these armies of slaves back to Zanzibar, where Zanzibar remained the largest slave market because it was under a dynasty that were Omani and were outside British control. And there's a lot of written about this because uh, Livingston and uh, all those uh, early colonial missionary stroke ex- explorers write about this. And one thing we need to say is that in the Gulf, slavery continues until the 1960s and 70s. Mm. Uh, and in Oman and various other parts of the Hejaz, you're getting slavery continuing even as Sergeant Pepper is being recorded. That is extraordinary. Look at that. Gosh. It's 1970 that it's abolished finally in Oman. I mean, that's just breathtaking. Breathtaking. So, I mean, it's sort of linked to another question that uh, Abra Haider has has put to us. I want to request you guys to share your opinion about the role of Islam in the abolition of slavery. Many Muslims claim and refer to the address of the Prophet during Hajj, and then some practices of freeing the slaves as a, a form of atonement. So, look, I don't know much about this, but I do remember our brilliant guest, Nabil Matar, who was talking about the Barbary Corsairs, who said that a lot of the time for Brits who were who were taken from the British Isles and then deposited around the you know what is now sort of the Middle East and Morocco and North Africa that actually the the thing was that their route out of slavery was often conversion that if they did convert it made it easier or more likely that they would be freed as slaves so i think that cannot be true because we know about the whole history of uh, gulam slavery the military slavery whereby you remain a slave, even though you might be a ruler or a governor or a general. And so there are certainly forms of slavery that seem to have been in practice permissible under Islam. Uh, so I would doubt very much if that's true. I'm sure that uh, in practice, whatever the theological niceties of it. It didn't translate in the real world. Yeah, that slavery continued. Yeah, and you just talked about Oman and other places. I mean, those are the places until very recently that had slaves. Yes, and those wouldn't all have been non-Muslims, although many of them were. And there was this trade in black Africans from the the coast of East Africa being shipped up to the Gulf until modern times. Okay, good. Uh, So this one here, a lot of people asking this question, I think it's quite an involved question, very happy to answer it. We sort of touched on it a little bit when we talked about the Netherlands in the last uh, Q&A. Owen Rees, dare I mention the word reparations in all of this? What do you think of of reparations? I thought our Alex Renton episode was utterly breathtaking, I thought. So this was, if you've missed it, go back and listen, but it's a, a man whose family were deeply involved in the slave trade and enriched by the slave trade. And he has, with a number of other people, and some of them very prominent people indeed, and we're talking about people like the Earl of Harewood, David Lascelles, um, retired social Lassels. Is that how you say it? I always yep. said Lascelles. Oh, gosh, I'm so silly. Rosemary Harrison, retired social worker. Charles Gladstone, who is, I think, one of the Gladstones and former BBC correspondent Laura Trevelyan, formerly of my parish, who have all, with Alex, been looking at their family's involvement 
in the slave trade and who are talking about restorative justice to, and in their words, tackle the ongoing consequences of this crime against humanity. So you have, on the one hand, William, you know, we talked about apologies, I suppose, with with the Netherlands, but reparations are are a separate issue. What what are what are the the hues of this debate? Would you say? I never know what I think about this, and I've I've thought a lot about it. On one hand, of course, these are massive crimes against humanity and on an industrial scale, unprecedented in human history. On the other hand, as we've seen in the course of the series, slavery is something universal. It's been practiced all over the world throughout human history, not all times, not all places. But where do you, I mean, where do you stop it? Are, are, are we going to have historians researching the number of, uh, of black Africans taken from East Africa and shipped to India in the Middle Ages? Are we only talking about the, the Middle Passage in the 18th century? I, I don't know what I feel about this. I, I, on one hand, obviously, if someone like Alex and, or, or the Trevelyans who, who personally made money demonstrably historically are willing to make these extraordinary gestures, I think it's a wonderful thing. Mm. But where do you, I don't know where you stop. I mean, it's, you know, do you, do you go back to Mesopotamia? What, what about, what about if not to individuals, then to countries? So for example, we talked about Haiti and, you know, Haiti owe a huge debt to the French. So what about reparations to countries that have been impoverished as a result of slavery? Not to individuals, but if, if that is hard to find and to trace, what about to nations that have been impacted by this phenomenon of 1700s to 1800s slavery, which it's, it, it does seem to be unprecedented in, in human history? I just don't know how you'd measure it and how you'd police it and where you'd stop is my only anxiety about it. I, I, I can see the, the logic in it and I can see the justice in it, but I, I don't know how you'd quantify it or well i mean the, the way some some people are doing it again i'm because i've been looking at the netherlands in detail because of your questions in fact from last week this is the way that uh, mark rutter the uh, prime minister of the netherlands who made the apology uh, has decided to go about this so he has pledged to commit 200 million pounds worth of government funds towards restoration work in former dutch colonies so that's the way that they are dealing with it. I think that would be a very good thing. I don't know how, how is this is this something voluntary? Is this something that you impose on countries? Is this, I don't know how. Well, it has to be voluntary because no one can oppose it, can they? No one can, can impose, unless you sort of say, right, we're going to have sanctions against you. I don't, I mean, there's no way of imposing it. It has to come from the country itself. But but the Netherlands, that's how, that's how they're dealing with it. I mean, others have argued that, you know, you can't, much as you're saying, it's too, too difficult. And also, I think, you know, people like Nigel Bigger have said there's no moral imperative to do anything about this. Slavery is just a fact of life. Both both sides of this debate make me feel uh, uncomfortable. Um, I just don't, I don't know, I, I don't know how to, how to... How to answer it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, sort of, maybe that is the way. I mean, if it is too hard to find individuals and reparations to countries that have been affected. I don't know. I don't know if that's not really a, a clear-cut answer, but this is not a clear-cut subject, perhaps. Uh, another question here, uh, Tom Jilliff. Oh, I like this question very much. Would you go so far as to describe Dr. Johnson as an abolitionist? I, you know, I described him always in my head, and I think on, on our podcast as well, as a sort of a protean abolitionist before it was a thing, you know, that his sensibilities were roused in the way that nations were then stirred by the abolitionist movement. So I I, I don't know. I mean, he, he, we said in the podcast, do you remember, he, he famously said, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes? So he definitely yeah. knew the hypocrisy 
of what was going on. And when he was talking about America in that instance, what do you think? Is he? Is he an abolitionist? I've never heard him fight for abolition of slaves, but he clearly disliked it personally. It's very clear that mm. he found it vile and that he did his best in his personal life to treat Francis Barber w with love and with, um, with, with equality. But 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 I don't think I don't think you could actually say that he, he's not a card carrier. It's not that he he's not a badge. card carrier. He doesn't politically organise. He, he, he you know he's not like Wilberforce. He's not stirring up yeah. you know Parliament to to fight slavery. It's more of a yeah. personal thing, and it's clear that he dislikes it uh, as as we know great swathes of the population always did. And actually, you know, it, this whole abolitionism as a movement really only starts getting going as, a, as an organised thing. Uh, he dies, Samuel Johnson, in 1784, but the Society for Effecting the Abolition of Slave Trade begins in 1787. So he just sort yep. of predates it. So I, I'd, still, I'd still stand by that protein abolitionist, maybe. But what he, what he represents is that swathe of English opinion, which... Mm hated the slave trade and hated slavery. That's not the same as being an abolitionist. No. I'm going to so. throw you a question now that I know you've been itching to get your, your teeth into. Um, the role of the Portuguese, because you've been saying this for a well, while. We should have covered the Portuguese, and maybe we'll yep. come back to this in a future series. But Louis Miranda says, uh, or Luis Miranda says, can you talk about how the Portuguese were really terrible slavers? They had a whole huge role in the slave trade, and they haven't been focused on at all. So they had the biggest role. In the slave trade, they were bigger slavers even than the British, who were the second biggest. And this is because they started long before everyone else. And they were the first, along with the Spanish, to invent the idea of the Middle Passage, of, of moving slaves from the uh, from West Africa to the cleared plant, new plantations being erected in the Caribbean islands. And so that's happening from the, is it the 15th century? Mm. From the, uh, the 1490s, from the time of Columbus onwards, right through until the 19th century. And after the English abolish the slave trade, there is still a massive slaving operation moving between Mozambique on East Africa and Brazil. Mm -hmm. And this becomes the largest slave network uh, after the, the English pull out in the early 19th century. Can I give you another stunning figure to add to your stunning figure? Yeah. From 1800 to 1850, the Portuguese shipped two and a half million slaves, just under two and a half million slaves. So that's way more than the British ever did in a period of, of 50 years. And as you say, Brazil receiving the most slaves during this period. Um, and like like the United States, Brazil still having to deal with the legacy of all of this. I mean, that's still a, a really contentious and hot issue in Brazil. And the way in which, you know, sort of colorism again uh, kicks into politics in modern Brazil is a, a vestige of that. So I think Mozambique becomes a very important centre for the Portuguese slave trade at this time. And a quarter of a million slaves are carried from Mozambique to Zanzibar in the first half of the 19th century, heading heading eastwards and then you have this long and horrific voyage because it's so much longer than the than the west african middle passage from mozambique all the way to brazil and on top of the very very crowded conditions on the slave ships which were every bit as bad as the ones going to the caribbean you get the slaves getting very cold in the hold when it's mm. going through the cape because you get freezing conditions mm. or cold conditions uh, 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 in that in that southern dive, and it's a much longer voyage, and there are mm -hmm. more storms. 
So apparently it was the worst. It was the worst of all the the slave passages. And when you go to Mozambique, there are these amazing on the coastal cities. All oh, the these, forts, uh, the vestiges yeah, all these of the forts. forts, and all yeah. these extraordinary rich houses in which the slavers yeah. lived. Are, are there some of the forts where you you still have sort of the 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 brickwork, the stonework, where you can see where shackles were were attached, exactly and things that. like that, which are really just so horrifying. And then you get very large Portuguese firms as late as the 1840s. There's a Portuguese company directed by someone called Manuel Brasilio de Junajeres, if that isn't the, right, the wrong pronunciation, who has bases in Cuba, New York and Mozambique. Mm. And so there's these very complicated commercial operations running quite late on uh, with large-scale slaving operations going on uh, in Portuguese territories. Right. The, uh, yes, going back that, that long voyage from Mozambique to the slave territories, some of the temperatures get very low when they're crossing the, 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 the Cape, but they go up to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. Uh, uh, when they're in the in in the in the, the tropical zone, so that they have the largest death rates of any yeah, slaving voyages. Of course, so, because of, they, you of, know what they are, they are not transporting meat; they are transporting men, women, and often children too in these conditions. And they have often fifty percent mortality rates. Yeah. Well. Okay. By the way, I think we should definitely do. Sorry, just thinking about your last answer, we should definitely do the Portuguese Empire in the future. I'd really like to do I'd like that, all that Vasco da Gama stuff. Exactly. Absolutely. Go, uh, all that. It would stuff. be so important yeah. to do this when you're talking about the Portuguese. I, I just love this so much because um, I, I have actually spent time in in Brazil, but I still have a really terrible Portuguese accent. So I'm sorry about this. But there is there is an idiomatic equivalent in Portuguese for this is not worth the paper it's printed on, and it's something that the the Portuguese came up with in the 1800s when Britain abolished slavery and were, was putting pressure on all other countries to follow suit, they would play along, almost play along. So they passed a law forbidding slavery, but in practice, nothing changed at all. So the law was literally just for the English to see. And that now gives rise to the idiomatic phrase, para os ingleses ver, which is uh, just for the English to see, only for the English to see, means nothing. Oh, very good, Anita, very good. Obrigada. Okay, Shahar has written to us and said, could you expand a bit about other European empires of the day, Spain, France, Austria-Hungary, and whether they enslaved people, be it of African descent or other? Okay, so just, uh, we talked a bit about Portuguese slavers and the most active slavers in the world. But the Spanish Empire was in decline at this time. We've talked about this as well, where we talked about Toussaint Louverture and, and the position of the French. The British actually were the ones who supplied Spain with a lot of their slaves. Correct. So in 1713, England uh, acquired something called the Asiento contract. Uh, it's, it's, we talked about it a little bit in the Royal African Company episode. And that allowed them to supply Spain's American colonies with about, well, just under 5,000, 4,800 slaves every year. The French were a very powerful slaving force, largely because of Saint-Domingue, which we've been talking about a lot in this series, because it is so fascinating, what is now modern day Haiti. The French are the third in the rank. The order is, is Portuguese and Brazilians at the very top. What is this list that you keep? It's like Top of the Pops, but the most grim Top of the Pops so I've ever I'm seen. I'm reading this from a book, which was the, the first book I ever read on slavery, which was a great classic from 30 mm. years ago uh, by Hugh Thomas, The Slave Trade, The History of the okay. Atlantic Slave Trade. 1440 to 1870. But it's very interesting. It's only 20 years old, this book, and already the terminology mm. feels very dated and it feels oddly sort of um, 
bloodless in its description of, uh, of, of the horrors. Well, I mean, you, you keep going to it for the numbers, yes. So, yes, just to, to conclude, you know, the French were a really very powerful slaving force, uh, largely because of Saint-Domingue, which was, you know, their cash cow in the empire. But after Haitian independence, their slaving empire declined significantly and, and, and quickly. Okay, this one here, this is interesting. Um, Savitha says, uh, could you compare or do a comparison on the African slave population in North America and Britain? When I think about slaves in America, I'm thinking about large plantations, horrible treatment, segregation, hostility. What about black people who found their way to Britain, either as freed people or slaves? Was there segregation? Was there hostility where they lived? Well, look, the first thing that you should There are know, no plantations in Britain. So, yeah. It's almost invisible here to Britain. So, although Britain is, is, is so strongly represented in the slave trade, people don't see it here, which is why, you know, it sort of goes... It goes on and it's, it is bloodless, to use the word that you used yeah. uh, about the book that you've just been looking at, William. But in America, in the South, you see it everywhere. Yeah. You have to inure yourself to it. There are enslaved people in such large numbers that you cannot but, unless deliberately, close your eyes to this. And I thought the Maya Jasanoff episode that we did was, was you know, startling. I, I did know about this, but to be reminded of how many of the founding fathers were slave owners themselves. Yep. You know, the greats, Washington, for example, Jefferson people do know about and they know that he fathered children, but Washington himself, others as well, you know, of, of, of this cadre. So the difference, I suppose, is that here in Britain, the numbers are so small. Are people treated with racism? Well, I think, you know, again, in the Francis Barber episode, Peter Moore you know, sort of told us that, yeah, it can't have been a lovely life for Francis when he, you know, it, it, it can't have been a safe place sometimes running from Samuel Johnson's house to Fleet Street to get pamphlets published or, or books published. It, it wasn't altogether safe. I think there's an important legal distinction also in that the USA had legally segregation mm -hmm. and there was never legal segregation in Britain. You're, you're but, talking about modern United States, yeah, the, you know, the, the, the yeah. more modern politics, yeah. But the UK until 1965 never had laws prohibiting racial segregation. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, they didn't do it, but there were no prohibitions. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about it in that in that way. Okay. But I think that the key the key thing to take away though is that in Britain slavery powered the economy but was almost invisible. So you get in Jane Austen, in Mansfield Park, you get the money coming from the, the slave plantations, and that is registered there. But uh, but you don't see it. It's only in the in the movie of Mansfield Park where you have Harold Harold Pinter playing the the, the hideous uh, slave owner with the, with the, with his sort of chamber of oh, horrors. Did he? Yeah. Right. Mm. Okay, look, this is a good point to take a break. Join us after the break for more of your Q and A's. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. 
Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back. You're listening to a very special Q&A episode of Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Drimple. I think this is a complicated question that comes from uh, Louise Shalev. Well, let's try and answer it. So, Louise, I was puzzled by your omission of the slave labour used by the Nazis during World War II. For Jews especially, there was no possibility of being freed from this slavery. Rather, it was a sure death sentence. As a matter of discussion, what's the difference between forced labour and slavery? Very interesting question. And I, it is, I, yeah. I mean, fascinating and a you know, moral philosophical question. So, I think we've talked about the difference, but just to recap, the difference between forced labour and slavery is your descendants will be slaves also, I suppose, if you are a purchased product, which is what slavery does. The Nazis are such a specific and utterly cruel, inhumane and monstrous concept that the labour is almost not their first concern when it comes to the final solution. It is the eradication of a people. And that is not the same as those who indenture servitude or those who enslave people. So those who went and bought from the kingdoms of Dahomey did not do so to wipe out the, the neighbouring tribes of Dahomey. They did it for economic gain. But it's almost as if the side product of wiping out a people is to work them to death. I mean, I, it's, a, it's a nuanced and it's, I mean, it's all horrific. It's all awful. There is no relativism in this at all. But if there are differences, maybe those are where they are. I think also, the, I mean, it doesn't make it any, any better or worse, but the, the idea of private ownership. Mm. If you're a slave, you're owned by a person and you are property legally. And I'm not sure that was true. I mean, I don't think the, the horrible concentration camp commandants owned 
the people there. No, but you had you had companies, didn't you? You had big manufacturers who That's very happily used That's forced labour. So you know, Al, Al, you know Albert Speer and other, one of the best books I've ever read in my life. Gita Sereni. Gita Sereni. I mean, it's just absolutely um, Albert Speer, the search for truth. She hounds him, and and in the in the in the most brilliant journalistic kind of way, chipping away and chipping away. The one man who takes responsibility at the Nuremberg trials, Albert Speer, is the one man who stands up and says, "Yes, I am responsible," and for that he is spared the death penalty. The others who say, I didn't know anything, I didn't know about the final solution, I didn't, you know, deny and deny and deny, they they go to the gallows. He does he doesn't, he does something different. But then she keeps asking him, Albert, you must have known. You must have known something. You did know something. Come on, you knew. And it goes on for decades. And because Speer at the time, you know, formerly the architect of the Nazis, who then turns into somebody who's looking after manufacture during the war effort. He finally, finally has to admit that yes, he knows. He knows that slaves, are, or you know, sort of that Jews are being forced to slave labour. There's no other way of calling it, really, into corporations as work for force for corporations for munitions for cars for other things. And it's this horrific revelation, almost that he cannot admit to himself. I really commend this book to you. If we're, we're talking about books, it changed my life. Changed my view of what journalism I met her, really means. I met Gita Sereni. She was extraordinary, uh, extraordinary. She was woman. teeny. Yeah. She's the only <laughs> woman I've jumped on. I mean, literally. <laughs> I, I, I'm normally I have this sort of savoir when it comes to meeting people I like. I normally I play it the other way and pretend I hate them because I, can't, <laughs> I just can't afford or bear to embarrass myself. But with Gita Sereni, she was speaking at the National Theatre, and this book had meant so much to me that I was, and I got one of the cheap seats as soon as a lot younger, and so I had dashed down the stairs like about eight flights to try and head her off at the pass and I couldn't breathe and <laughs> I just leapt on this teeny tiny woman who was four foot something. And Is I there just, a photograph I, of this woman? No, no, because it was just me and I just said, I love you. I just want you to know how much I love you and how much. She was completely baffled, this mad woman flying at her from the stairs, but it was an amazing thing. To return to, to the question, I don't think in practice probably there's, there's any great difference just like we talked about in the in the islamic world whether the the the, the theological stipulations against slavery yeah. actually make any difference on the ground i'm not i think the difference between being a, a, a slave labor in a nazi death camp or being slave labor yeah. in a plantation neither of them would be feel pretty equally horrible and equally awful, ghastly. Yeah. Uh, okay, historical fiction. Sarah Tanburn says, what do William and Anita think about historical fiction, especially as a way to fill in the gaps to do the work of giving voice to those erased and silenced by the winners? What is your gold standard for historical fiction? I have to say I increasingly get irritated by historical fiction because I want to know what actually happened rather than the fictional version. And the first thing I do whenever I read historical fiction or when I see a, a historical movie is to go straight into my books to, to see what actually happened and what's invented. Me too. Me too. So this is a this is a this is a joy because I I do enjoy going to see them and I, I you know I will go and see Napoleon when it comes out, but I will take almost as much joy <laughs> on the way home from the cinema. Made it up. Well, my husband and I we've made it. We turn it into almost a blood sport where we go. Well, that was rubbish. <laughs> that wasn't true. And how many inaccuracies can you? I mean, we are a nightmare for for historical depictions. Doesn't say I don't go to watch them. If you were if you were to take Dior Desert Island only historical fiction, what would be on your List. I mean, historical fiction. I, I, let's talk about cinematic. Okay, cinematic. I mean, I. So this is really, really interesting. So I I rewatched fairly recently Lawrence of Arabia, 
And I really loved it. I remember watching it the first time and being quite bored. I rewatched it. I watched it every Christmas. I watched it in Egypt. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, so I really enjoyed it and I watched it with my kids. And so it just opened up a whole bunch of conversations uh, that we didn't have. I also rewatched Gandhi and I found it really slow and I found it quite bloodless. <laughs> very, slow, yeah. very, very slow. And also just the drama of it. So I didn't like it as much as I remember when I first watched it. I thought it was fabulous. Same as to the Jewel in the Crown, uh, which is yeah, very, very slow. Can't now. watch it at all. Can't. I can't bear it. Cannot bear it. Um, the other one that I, I I have watched fairly recently, and I still enjoy it just because it's so beautiful. Is Doctor Zhivago? <laughs> it's like you know, it's like a. So you've been it. on the exact same trajectory after really? watching after watching so uh, uh, Lawrence Arabia. We then watched Bridge Over the River Kwai. Uh, Did and you? Again, okay. Wanted to know what was true, what wasn't uh, yeah, 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 of, yeah. of that. Uh, and Doctor Zhivago is next next on our list. So we, uh, oh, is that right? So, so I I still love Doctor Zhivago. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And it moves faster. But we're getting off the question, which is historical fiction. So the writing, I mean, obviously mm. there are great works of historical fiction like War and Peace, uh, which is yeah. lots of uh, made up people by Tolstoy fighting Napoleon. Well, yeah. I mean, if we're talking Russia, I, uh, Diary, of a, Diary of a Hero, Lermontov, who, who writes this uh, fantastic thing, which is also set in, a, a, in the same period of time, has a really brilliant moment where a man is furiously ripping up Lermontov's diary and, and, and oh, the, the, the hero's diary and, and turning it, folding it and folding it so that his voice will be forever destroyed and turning it to wads for bullets and shoving them into a gun. So, you know, I, I, liked, I liked Lermontov as well. Of English historical fiction, Robert Graves, has to yep. be at the top of my list. I love the I, Claudius and Claudius the God, but also less well-known, Count Belisarius, a yeah. wonderful book about the Byzantine general. Well, I, mean, I really like um, I like um, Harris's uh, Pompeii a lot. I really like <laughs> it. Really 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 oh, it's great. <laughs> I mean, Robert Harris's Pompeii, I thought, was brilliant. Uh, I really enjoyed it. So, yes, um, there you go. There's a, there's a whole list of stuff. Um, Nigel Jones. Well, understandably, the series was focused heavily on the slavery resulting from the British Empire and the Caribbean. I'd be interested to know where else slavery continued to flourish as a significant presence in the early modern age to the 20th century. And Matthew Brown, too, is kind of linked. I'd be really interested in slavery outside the regions you've discussed. Maori culture, Chinese dynasties, or pre-Columbus Latin America. Look, can I talk just very briefly about something that's very, very modern, which is Yazidi women, uh, which I care about an awful lot. So, I mean, that, that that is 2014, ladies and gentlemen. 2014, we saw that plateau. We saw these women and children up on this plateau reaching into the sky saying, please pick us up because we will not be safe here. But help didn't come and they were enslaved, enslaved in every sense of that word by the Islamic State. So, you know, although there are there are camps where some of these women have now been sort of given some kind of shelter, there are still, according to the Organization for Migration, a, a UN-backed organization, it's known as the IOM, about 2,700 Yazidi women and children still missing. And many of them, says this organization, could still be with their kidnappers. So that to me makes my skin crawl and my blood turn to ice. There is a large um, Yazidi community in West London, in Ealing. Um, is that right? There's a whole area full of Syrian refugees and Syrian mm. migrants predating the, the, the collapse of Syria in Wembley and Ealing. And there are, um, I've been to some of these community centres for the Syrians where they used to have Saturday evening socials in the Smith's Crisp factory oh, really? <laughs> social you know, I got called right. to give a lecture there after my book Holy Mountain which had a lot of stuff about the Nestorians and the Chaldean Christians who are also neighbours and uh, of the Yezidis and there are Yezidi kebab shops in Wembley right. believe it or not 
Are they good? <laughs> They're very Are good. They nice? but I went 20 okay. years ago. I haven't, as, a, as a connoisseur the of the kebab, <laughs> how, would you, how would you rate the Yazidi kebab? Anyway, look, but seriously, I mean, that is, that is a, a, a modern um, slavery that, uh, yes. It's just all too recent, isn't it? We talk about the abolition of slavery, but there are enslaved peoples all over the world. There are bonded labours all over the world. And Mm. um, this is an ongoing story. Sadly, it's not history. Thank you for all of your questions. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for making this podcast uh, as successful as you have. We pinch ourselves every episode that you're with us and you remain with us despite our incessant prattling but we're really grateful uh, we will be shortly announcing what the new series is about so watch this space as they say I was longing to tell you now and I was forbidden no, to breaking I'm the- not, I will <laughs> promise I will come over there and I will honestly I will taser you I don't have a taser I yet I will say it's a good but I will it's a good, it's not going to be bad, is it? It's dreadful. We've got a dreadful series. <laughs> You're really, really substandard. Optimal. Of course, it's a good You're going to be really bored you? over the next three months. <laughs> You're going to hate it. No, you're not. No, look, next Tuesday is our big announcement. I have, I've just been uh, researching and writing uh, mm-hmm. some of the some of the roadmaps for the yeah. uh, for the next series, yeah. and it is a cracker. And I can't wait to Don't get back to it. Say it any more than that. Just it's be exciting. excited. Just exciting. <laughs> it's exciting. It's exciting. Anyway, listen, join us then. Till then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arden. And goodbye from me, William Durrimple. 